Welcome back, everyone, and we're delighted that you're joining us in what is now episode six. Hello, Father, how are you? Hello, Christine. Good day to you. Good day to all our listeners and viewers. Are you in a very good mood with Liverpool's score last night? Yes, I am indeed. I am indeed. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> after the woeful performance at the weekend. So, yeah, I'm in better form, better mood. Thank you, yeah. Very good. Okay, well, before we get started then, Father, do you want to lead off in prayer? Surely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we praise you, and we bless you. We thank you for the gift of Advent, uh, this beautiful season of silence and waiting, preparing our hearts and minds to receive our Lord Jesus Christ um, as Saviour into our lives once more. We thank God for the teaching and example of St. John Paul the Great. We ask for a receptivity and a docility to receive this life-giving uh, message. We ask for the intercession of Mary, our blessed mother, St. Joseph, our beloved um, patron. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing um, Catechesis General Audience number seven and eight. Um, I will start focusing in particular on General Audience number seven, and then Father David will take on General Audience eight. But there may also be some discussion along the way. So with General Audience seven, John Paul II is continuing to take us into this experience of original solitude. And each time he's taking us a little bit deeper and he's revealing a little bit more about the structure and the truth of the human person. And that's what all of this work is all about. It's building up this Christian anthropology so that we can understand who and what the human person is. So he begins by summarizing that so far in our analysis of original solitude, we've come to understand and appreciate that man, the creation of mankind, is different from that of the animal kingdom. And that through his body, man comes to appreciate and understand that unlike the animals, he has these additional powers of intellect, of will, of self-determination, of free choice and self-consciousness. And so he possesses powers that the animals do not. John Paul II then goes on and um, he examines this quote from Genesis 2.7. He says, The Lord God formed man with the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now that's quite a concise sentence, but it's actually packed with content. Because as we know, uh, man is made of matter, of dust of the ground. But what this quote from Genesis tells us is that we're not just simply made of matter and dust, but that life is breathed into us by God himself. And John Paul II says, this is the complexity of man's anthropological structure, that man is in fact a being of unity, body and soul. And so this, again, serves to emphasize his solitude from amidst the rest of creation, that he alone has been created as a someone and not a something. 
The third point that I want to pull out from what John Paul II is telling us in this experience of original solitude and the distinction of the creation of man from the animal kingdom is that the creation of man is very much a personal and almost a quite visceral encounter because we hear that God says um, that he blew the breath of life into man. So it's a deeply personal connection when God creates man. And so man comes to this further realization that he has the capacity to be in a personal relationship with God in a way that the animals cannot. And that only he has the capacity to respond to the commands and the desires of God, such as to till the earth and subdue it. And this is because it's only he who has been created as a person and not an animal. And therefore, only he is capable of entering into this covenantal relationship with God, his creator. Fourthly, um, this experience of original solitude, John Paul II tells us that man discovers not only all of these other things about his body, but also that his body has meaning. And he says, um, man is a subject, a human person, not only because of these powers of self-consciousness and self-determination and his bodily structure, him being created as a unity body and soul. John Paul II says the structure of his body is such that it permits him to be the author of genuine human activity. In this activity, the body expresses the person. Now, again, those two little sentences are absolutely packed with meaning. So I'm just going to unpack that a little bit. What John Paul II means is that in his unique structure as a being, body and soul, man is a being who is able to relate to, to comprehend, to comprehend, sorry, to choose, to deliberate, to be moral, to be virtuous. And he does all of these things in and through his body. So the human body expresses not just actions, but the author of the actions, the person. And we, we can sense this because when someone hits us, we don't say you hit the body or why did you hit the body? We say, why did you hit me? The body is not then just a vehicle for physical actions, for mere mechanics of moving around, the body expresses us as persons, as human beings. So any actions that we engage in are expressive of who we are and what we are. So as we know, animals act on instinct, but John Paul II is saying our actions are the expressions of genuine human activity because we have that power of self-determination and free will, and we can choose to be moral or immoral. Uh, in Veritatis Splendor, and quoting Thomas Aquinas, John Paul II says, human acts are moral acts because they express and determine the goodness or evil of the individual who performs them. So again, this is a difference between mankind and the animal kingdom that man is a human bodily creature, a unity body and soul, and not mere animal. And the fifth uh, dimension of original solitude that I want to highlight today is this notion of contingency. And again, this is an experience of original solitude. Because moving further into this analysis of Genesis 2 and the phrase, 
God blew the breath of life. Man not only discovers his unity, his creation, his unity of body and soul, but he also comes to appreciate that he didn't create himself. And perhaps that's something we don't often think about when we read Genesis. He comes to realize that he doesn't rely on himself for his own existence. Instead, he understands that he is reliant on God, the creator, for his being. In other words, through original solitude, man comes to understand that he is a limited being, a contingent being, and he relies on God for his existence. And this sense of contingency of reliance is further emphasized by um, when we hear God say in Genesis, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For when you eat of it, you shall certainly die. And John Paul II astutely points out that at this point, of course, man had no experience of death. He had no encounter with it. So how would he have understood what God was saying? And John Paul II says that because God speaks to him in such a manner, it is clear that man is aware that he is not reliant on himself for his existence, that even though he has at this point no experience of death, he is clearly able to understand from what God has said to him that he needs to obey God and be in harmony with God and be in this covenantal relationship with God for his existence to continue as intended um, and for him not to be susceptible to death and to non-existence. So the choice belongs to man. And these are all the experiences of original solitude that are coming to light, that he has been endowed with this great gift of free will and self-determination. And of course, the question then is how man then chooses to exercise it. So I just wanted to pull out those sort of five key points about audience seven to give everyone something to think about. Is there anything that you want to add into that, Father, before you go on to general audience aid? No, Christine, gosh, that was a really beautiful summary, you know, as you do so well. Um, <clears throat> very clear, you know, and precise and, uh, you know, very beautiful, a very beautiful um, synopsis and summary. Um, the only little point I'd like to um, add is a, a slight tangent, if you like, you know, a divergence from the theology of the body, but the the breath of God, as you say, you know, breathing um, into the nostrils of Adam, uh, reminded me of John chapter 20 um, and Jesus in his resurrected body um, breathing on the apostles in the, the upper room. So as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. After bestowing this gift of peace, uh, John 20, um, 20 and 21 and following after saying this he breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit if you forgive anyone's sins you are forgiven if you retain anyone's sins they are retained and so again we see this divine gift of the breath of god breathing life into the church um freeing us from original sin uh, freeing us from our sins um, and so, again, this new creation of God, that was just um, a slightly side uh, diversion, but 
Yeah, Maybe leading to the discovery gift of the Holy Spirit and the breath of God. So I'll crack on, um, Christine, into um, audience number eight. So I think it's eight, nine, um, ten. Uh, we have then this second state, if you like, uh, John Paul II calls original unity. So we've looked at original solitude. And so these um, following audiences then go into um, original unity, which is a really stunning and perhaps um, in many ways a core foundation of this teaching. And there's always so much we can say, of course, um, but just to try and give you a flavor or a taste. Um, in uh, the account, the second account of creation, um, God first acknowledges that something is not good in his creation. Everything up until this point had been good although it was um, Adam's uh, solitude or aloneness that was not good. And so God sought to, to rectify this situation through the creation of Eve, as we know. And so right from the beginning of creation, there's a sense in which uh, the man, and indeed the man and the woman, are incomplete uh, without the other. Um, and so in audience eight of uh, John Paul II's catechesis, he says that, and I quote, together with this account, Genesis 2.18, he's commenting on, the meaning of original solitude enters and becomes part of the meaning of original unity the key point of which seems to be precisely in the words uh, Genesis 2.24, which Christ appeals in his dialogue with the Pharisees, a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two become one flesh. And so what we're having is this movement from original unity into original original solitude into original unity in a sense everything that you explained so well uh, christine in original solitude now passes over and in a sense becomes fulfilled uh, to some degree in original unity and this is really what we say is it's a definitive discovery of what it means to be a man or a woman and even further to some sense a father or a mother we begin to understand our identity at a very deep level so we know that all the animals were paraded before adam and they were good but he couldn't find um, a partner he couldn't find a companion he couldn't find someone to actualize, if you like, this um, this capacity for communion or intimacy until we had the 
um, creation of Eve. And so in some sense, the God created Eve, and this is a discovery of a second self. So everything that is common to the man and the woman in original solitude um, then is, uh, yeah, is discovered, if you like, in this. Um, these two people are now yearning for a communion. And so there's this uh, beautiful realization of this communion of persons. And so as we go into these, um, these audiences, and I'm sure you'll come on to this, Christine, we have the opening up of some of the key foundational concepts of the entire theology of the body. So we have the communion of persons that we'll go into um, next time in audience nine. And then this one flesh union of Genesis 2.24 that will really give us the um, the foundation of this core concept of John Paul II, which is the spousal meaning or the nuptial meaning of the body. Because all this unity, this gift of unity, is expressed and enabled through the human body. That... Um, intimacy, that communion potential, uh, that ability to go outside of the self, to give of the self to the other, is uh, revealed through the human body as male and female. And so we have this, this wonderful, rich teaching. And so more precisely then, in um, audience eight, we have a few items. Uh, we have this um, sleep, this famous sleep, of Adam, this torpor, uh, that there's a couple of points that um, really, in one of the footnotes of Audience 8, um, John Paul II is, is stating the that man falls into this sleep as a way of, in a sense, taking a step back and allowing the exclusivity exclusiveness of God's action in the creation of woman. And so as you said, Christine, with, you know, man's not determining this for himself. He's receiving life uh, from God. And so Eve is created, you know, not through the action of the man, but through the direct action of the woman. And then the, you know, the famous, um, uh, reality of, of the woman being created from the rib so we have this um radical equality of the man and the woman this um homogeneity uh, it's the same uh somatic structure of the body although it's very different so we have this so say this equality and this um yet this difference and complementarity now, Christopher West has a lovely commentary um, on this torpor or this sleep of Adam. He says that um, the Hebrew Old Testament translation in the English is the word ecstasy, which is a beautiful um, concept if we think that 
ecstasy literally means to be outside of oneself, almost to go outside of oneself. And so when, um, when Adam wakes up from this ecstasy, this sleep, this state of unconsciousness, he breaks out of that cycle of solitude, as it were, and there's this beautiful, beautiful realization that John Paul II comes back to. He says in audience eight, there's a joy and even exaltation for which he had no reason before. It's not beautiful. Even with God, even with all the beautiful creation of God, all these wonderful animals right before him, this you know extraordinary panoramic vision, if you like, of this um, idyllic, you know, Garden of Eden. Now, only now, does the man exhibit this joy and exaltation for which he had no reason before due to the lack of a being similar to himself. Joy for the other being, for the second I, dominates in the words of the man, words the man speaks on seeing the woman. And so this is the, the completion, if you like, of man in being able to make a gift of himself uh, to the woman. And so, again, we'll come back to these, these profound uh, truths. Is this fascination? Uh, is this awe? You know, gosh, the woman's body is the same but different, you know? So we have this reverence, uh, this fascination, this um, startling realization. And um, the author Mary Healy in her book has a lovely, um, a lovely image. She says that like the father of the bride, God presents Adam with his masterpiece. Isn't that a beautiful um, thought, you know, a spousal image of God the Father, you know, the highest point of creation, if you like, the end of the liturgical procession, uh, some people have said, is the woman, you know. And so there's this joy and I say this, uh, this wonderful exaltation. So I think these are themes we'll come back to. Christine, they're, they're beautiful and profound, um, but uh, maybe I could leave it there just for audience eight, and then we'll come back to this powerful theme of um, original unity in audience nine and ten. Yes, we will, Father. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and we certainly will circle back because that's just the nature of the text. And it's the nature of the way that John Paul II sets it all out. He draws us in, as, a, as we've said before, we just go deeper and deeper and more and more is revealed to us. But we're just constructing this wonderful anthropology of the human person um, and the beautiful introduction of woman to man. So it's just, uh, it's beautiful the way that he sets it out. And just to clarify for anyone who missed it, John Paul II does use all these phrases that can sometimes be a little bit alienating for people. So people will read in that audience somatic homogeneity, uh, which might be a bit of a barrier. So just to break that down, somatic meaning off the body, 
and homogeneity meaning sort of a sameness. So although their bodies are different, there is this complementarity between the man and the woman. They have this shared human nature. So they have this bodily um, sharing of who they are as human persons. So just in case anyone's struggling with some of the terms that John Paul II uses. But yes, I think we'll leave it there, Father, and then we'll reconvene next time. So thank you thank very you. much. Thank you, Christine, and thanks, everyone. I'm enjoying the journey. Okay. See you soon. Um, this will be going out Christmas week, so we wish everyone a very, very happy and holy Christmas. Amen. Amen. <laughs>